Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 25. So the last time we saw an unusual passage about a demon-possessed girl in Philippi that opened up really a discussion about the angelic realm, the demonic realm, and um, a few issues about discernment. Today we're going to see the results of Paul casting out the demon from that girl. Now before we read uh, verse 25, the first verse, which has a lot in it, just kind of tell you a little bit about what happened. You have Paul and Silas, and you have this girl, a slave girl, who's following them. And she's saying what appears to be a good message, but she's possessed by an evil spirit. So Paul casts out the spirit from her, and then her slave owners realize that now her, her divination ability, her fortune ability has been lost, and their ability to make a lot of money off of her. So they get mad at Paul and Silas. They drag them before the magistrates, uh, Paul and Silas, their, their shirts are stripped off and they're beaten with rods and now they're in prison. So they're in, in prison at this time. Verse 25, it says, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. So here's the scene. Paul and Silas, you, you got to put yourself in, in this position, you know, really think about it. They got beat with rods. They're beaten. They're bloody. They're shamed. They're in darkness because they were put in the inner prison. You know, the prisons had like, um, like rings, and the, the hardened, most hardened criminals were put in the inner prison, and it was dark in there because when the jailer comes in, he has to call for a light. They're humiliated. They're in chains, and they're praying. They're singing hymns to God, and they're worshiping with an element of joy. Does that seem like it makes any sense considering the circumstances? But, of course, that's how all of us here would respond to trials and persecutions, right? If you were in that position, be honest, you're in church. It's not common to respond like this all the time. But it is a sign of spiritual maturity. And really, it's a sign that you trust God with the circumstances or with the outcome, notwithstanding the circumstances. Because your feelings will betray you. and We've spoken about that. In trials, you may not feel like giving thanks to God in those dark times in your flesh. It's only by his spirit that we can rejoice in those times. Charles Spurgeon said this, Any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But it's the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read the notes by. Songs in the night come only by God, from God. They are not in the power of men. And in verse 25, it says that the prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas, they no doubt people know what's going on. And uh, the other prisoners, they're listening. They see what happens. And they hear the prayers. They hear the singing. And they're interested. The Greek word for listening is not just listening. It actually signifies an intent listening. They're actually hanging on every word of Paul and Silas. And it's not because they're stuck in prison and they have nothing better to do, so let's just listen to Paul and Silas. They're really interested in what's going on with these two men. And I guess my question is, how intently are you listening to God's word today? How intently are you listening to God's voice? Some of these men in this prison experienced a life-changing event because they were listening. And Jesus said this. On face value, it sounds ridiculous. He said, Jesus said often, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, that sounds absurd. What else are ears for but to hear? 
But how often do you listen to something and you don't, you don't take it in? You don't meditate on it? It kind of goes in one ear and out the other if that was a possibility. But he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are you listening right now? Did you hear what I just said in the last five minutes? You have to nudge your spouse to ask her, what is he saying? What did he say? You're thinking about something else. Are you listening to God speak to you through the scripture? Because that's what he does through his scripture. He speaks to us. Or are you just doing the Sunday thing? Some people come to church because it's a duty. I'm doing my thing because afterwards I'm going to go play golf or I'm going to take my kid here. Or I got a whole bunch of things. Hurry up with the sermon. You're taking a little bit long. I got to get out of here. Right? A duty. Many of the prisoners may have come to Christ in this example because of Paul and Silas's example. Christians, many people are watching us. God desires to do a work through us, Christians, and it's not always going to be fun. If somebody told you that, they're lying to you. Come to Christ. Be a child of God. Everything will be perfect. Not so. That's a lie. Sometimes God will use times like this very thing to use us to reach other people. He lets things, he allows things to happen to us for this very reason. We're going to see at the end of the story what the fruit was of this event. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. A great earthquake. In the Greek, the word is seismos megas. If you take that apart, you parse it. Seismos in the English, we get seismic activity, earthquake. And megas is an adjective that we get directly into the English. Mega meaning really big. So this was a great earthquake. You talk about, the first thing I thought about was talk about your earth-shaking prayer. This is a direct result of the actions of these two men. It opened the doors, it removed the shackles from the prisoners, and it shook the foundations. It was obviously a miracle, and it was obviously from God. I love to hear people really worship God. I get so excited when I'm in the company of other people who pray like they mean it. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Pray like you mean it. Confident, boldly, but also reverent. And you can have both. Remember, we're coming into the throne room of God, but we're the king's kids. So we come boldly, but we also come reverently. Imagine prayer and worship that precipitated an earthquake. Pretty good stuff. So the keeper of the prison, we find that was going to kill himself. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Well, because Roman culture was particularly harsh. If you were a soldier, and we saw this with the keepers of the tomb, with Jesus, remember, when we were in Luke? If you were a soldier or a jailer or a warden, and one of your prisoners escaped, you would suffer the same awful punishment that the escaped prisoner would have received. So all this guy needed, this jailer, was a few capital offenders in the lot And if they all escaped, or some of them escaped, he was going to get the same punishment that they got. So it was often better at times to kill yourself than face the shame and humiliation and the punishment that was coming your way. We use a colloquialism today called falling on the sword. In corporate America, oh, Johnson's got to fall on the sword. 
Well, let me tell you something. It had more of a literal rendering in ancient times. They literally did take the sword out of its sheath, point it towards themselves, and they fell on the sword and killed themselves. So it was pretty, a pretty harsh society. But we see that Paul and Silas didn't treat this man harshly, this jailer. In the flesh, Paul and Silas could have looked at their wounds, felt their pain, looked at the humiliation, and looked at the, cha- the jailer who had the sword out and said, Go ahead, pal. <laughs> Poetic justice. I'm going to enjoy watching this. They could have done that, but they didn't do that. Probably the most difficult thing to do is to not repay evil for evil. Revenge. Vendetta. Now, I'm of Italian descent, and I um, went to college with my friend Tony. He was Italian, too. And he said, you know, I think Italians invented the word vendetta. I don't know if it's because it's got an A at the end or whatever, but... One, one more Italian joke, and I can say this because I'm Italian. Um, somebody sent me something that says, you know you're Italian if there's, there's always someone in your family that nobody else talks to. Okay, now that I got that out of the way. Sometimes it's really hard to forgive someone who really hurts you. Now, I don't mean something minor. Somebody offends you or says something, and oh, I'm doing the Christian thing, I'm forgiving them. I mean somebody who really comes after you, and the key is undeservedly. The Bible says if we suffer as evildoers, that's to our own shame. That's, we're not suffering for God. If you find yourself that you committed a crime and you get in trouble for it, oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. You're dumb. As, as Christians, we shouldn't be doing that. But the Bible says to, when you suffer for doing righteousness, that is a testament to your faith and your walk with the Lord. And it can sting a little bit, can it? There was um, uh, some time back a person who made a bogus complaint against me in my other job, and it went through internal affairs. The person actually later on retracted the complaint because it was bogus. Uh, but it stung because I thought, wow, they're coming after me, and this is the way I feed my family. You know, you get, you get offended when things happen like that. It's becoming personal. But at time, I got over it, and I actually met with the person, and it, it was okay. Just, just let it go. Has it ever happened to you? Has somebody ever come after you, maybe financially, try to rip you off, or maybe hurt one of your children, or maybe uh, just, just there's so many possibilities, right? You're going through that right now, possibly. Pray that the Lord help you. And look at Paul and Silas' example. Because when we hold a grudge and we don't forgive, it only hurts ourselves. You know, it's almost as if we think if we hold the grudge and we get angrier and angrier, it's going to hurt them. It doesn't hurt them. It just hurts us. And the Bible says we're to forgive. And this is a great example of what these guys went through undeservedly, and they forgave. Although Paul had been abused, he had compassion on the jailer because he knew the truth about him. The jailer appeared to be free. He was a free man, right? It was his job to jail others. He imprisoned others, but he was a free man. But in reality, the jailer was the one who was held in spiritual bondage and chains to his own sin and self-directed life as everyone is prior to the cross. Whether you realize it or not, if you're not in Christ, you are held in bondage. You're a prisoner. You're in chains to your own self-directed life and your sin. I want to read 1 Corinthians 7, starting with verse 21. 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Paul said, Were you called while a slave? 
were you called out of the world into the fellowship of God, a child of God, to be a Christian? Or you can make the picture, were you called while in prison? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that calling in which he was called. Now, this sounds like a puzzle. It almost sounds like it, it kind of goes back and forth. I don't understand what he's talking about. What Paul is basically saying is, there was, again, we, we talked about the slavery, the harsh treatment in the Roman Empire. What Paul wanted to make sure was people were called at, out of high positions, out of low positions, and even those who were called while slaves, he wasn't looking for them now that they were free in Christ to overthrow Rome and start a revolt. Christianity was not supposed to be known as a, a rebellious or overthrowing type of, of faith. But what he was saying was, even if you're a slave, you're freed in Christ. You're freed from your sin. You're freed from your self-directed life. And he said, are you free? Are you called and you're free and you think you got the best of both worlds? Well, I got news for you. If you really are in Christ, you're the Lord's slave, right? In Romans, uh, Paul tells us that who you present your members to be slaves of, that one will become your master. And Jesus told us that you will serve one or two masters. You, you will serve somebody. I prefer to serve God, but some people prefer to serve their own lusts and their self-directed life. Verse 28. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all in here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul and Silas try to prevent this Philippian jailer from taking his own life. And with nothing to lose at this point, the jailer asks what everyone should be asking. What must I do to be saved? Maybe some of you today are asking that very question. Maybe this is the first time you've really been introduced to the Bible. And you're saying, that's a good question. What's this whole saved thing? Am I saved? How do I know if I'm saved? What must I do to be saved if I'm not saved? Those are all good questions. And if you don't know the Lord, you should be asking those questions. What must I do to be saved? Acts 2.38. Peter said to repent and believe. And we're going to cover that. Acts 4.12. Believe in Jesus because in no other name is salvation offered. And nobody actually tries to offer salvation in any, any other name. If you follow the writings of Muhammad, which I did, and Buddha and some of these other leaders, none of them said, hey, in, in me you will find eternal life. If you believe in me, your sins will be forgiven. None of them said that. They never even claimed it. In Jesus is the only name on heaven, on earth, on the earth beneath, whatever it is, in the sea, Jesus said it is his name. That is the name that we're saved by. And similar to the jailer, many often come to Christ when they're at the end of their rope. They've tried everything else, the last choice. Now, if we think of this in human terms, it can be insulting. So I've tried the money, I've tried the cars, I've tried the homes, I've tried the drugs, I've tried the... The women, I've tried uh, the success, and, you know, I'm still not happy. You know, maybe I'll try the Lord. I'll try this Jesus thing, see how it works out. Again, in human terms, if we were the last choice, we'd be insulted. If you were the last person picked for the prom, wouldn't you be insulted? It's insulting. 
If you're in grade school and you're the last kid picked for dodgeball, you're insulted. And I wasn't very good at dodgeball, so I was usually the second to last or the last kid who was picked for dodgeball. It's like, guys, don't do me any favors, you know. I know I've got to be on one team or the other. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. See, he doesn't think like we think. He's compassionate. He's loving. He shows grace. Not only did he die for us while we were yet sinners, but he also was so merciful that he will still save when he's the last choice. He held out the olive branch in all our rebelliousness and sin. And I would say to you, don't waste the opportunity. Now, I'm not saying that if the person that I mentioned, you go through all these things and you say, hey, why don't I try Jesus? If your heart is really not in it, you really don't care, but you're looking to make yourself happy, that's not true repentance and believing in Jesus. But the point I'm trying to make is don't miss the opportunity because the Bible is very clear in the Scripture. There is an open opportunity right now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to be saved, the Bible tells us. But it's also very clear that there will be a time where that won't be available anymore. It won't be affordable. So now is the day. If you don't know the Lord, seek the Lord, and, you will find, and he'll, he'll find you, the Bible says. Verse 28, Paul and Silas say to the jailer, we are all in here. Now many prisoners may have been saved through this experience, but the focus is on the jailer. So all the prisoners are technically free, but they had the option to continue to listen to uh, Paul and Silas' way of salvation. And again, I like to, to use pictures. To me, I like, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. Just picture, for those of you who are familiar with any of the jails around here, I did prison ministry, so I'm familiar with the workhouse on Route 130, right? Just imagine two prisoners, two, you know, preachers or whatever. They come in, they're unjustly treated, and they're, they're in the prison. And they're praying at midnight, and they're singing hymns to God. And God shakes the family. And I've been in those prisons. Those doors are like a few hundred pounds. You can't move those things. And all of a sudden, the, the, the foundations come apart, and the doors come open, and all these prisoners now are free. Boy, the guards are going to have a problem now, aren't they? Because they're, you know, they're outnumbered. Just picture that scene. So going back to here, the question is, why didn't these prisoners flee? Why did Paul and Silas say, hey, we're still in here? You would think that these guys would say, hey, I'm free, I'm out of here, and they book. Why didn't they flee? What held them captive if there wasn't physical restraints that held them captive? Well, maybe it was God's word. Maybe they heard Paul and Silas praying and praising when by all physical indicators, they shouldn't be. Wait, this doesn't make sense. How are these guys so joyous? And maybe their interest was piqued, and maybe the word was getting a hold of their heart. John 5:24, Romans 10:17. The Word of God is regenerative. I remember when I first really heard the Word of God preached and taught that there was something about it. I was drawn to it. I couldn't put my finger on it. You know, I had a lot of questions in my mind, but it was the Word of God just really did something in my heart. It got a hold of me. It's regenerative. Two things people will do when they come in contact with the Word of God. They're either going to be drawn to it like a magnet or they're going to fight it and they're going to dig their heels in like putting your foot in the door, and they're going to try to get themselves away from it. It only has two effects on, on people, one or the other. And that's the beauty of our God. He gives us the freedom to choose him or to go back to our shackles of sin and self-directed life under the guise of freedom. And we covered this. I'm free. I don't need the Ten Commandments. I don't need Christianity. I don't need my parents telling me what to do. I'm free. I can be as promiscuous as I want. I can take as many drugs as I want. I can make as much money as I want and step on the people next to me to get to the top. I'm free. I'm free. And while their hands are up, 
there's actually invisible shackles on their hands. They're slaves to themselves and their sin and their self-directed life. The question is, what will be your choice? You are also here, and you're free also to get up and walk out. I don't like what you have to say. You're free. No one's going to stop you. No one's going to tackle you. I'll tell Marty to move out of the way. But you can, you can just get up, and you could walk out, and you're free. You can hear the word of God. You can hear the life-changing message of the gospel, or you can walk away. You can receive the free gift of salvation and spend eternity with the one who saved you, who created you, who loved you since the foundations of the world, or not. It's your choice. Now, notably absent as a precursor for salvation, and I like to cover this every so often, is a few things that maybe some people think, well, to be saved, well, don't I have to, because I've heard this, and they give me a list of things that they think they have to do. Noticeably absent is, number one, being on a church payment plan. Well, don't I have to be on a church payment plan to be saved? Doesn't that kind of hedge my bets towards God? Isn't he more happy with me when I do that? It's not in there. Two, don't I have to find the right denomination, the particular denomination that says that they have the market cornered on salvation? Who, Who is it? Is it you or is it the church down the street? It's not a denomination. It's the Bible. My only... When I criticize other churches, it's because they don't use God's word. Because without God's word, it's just a social club. Everybody comes here, they have a similar interest, they meet in the hallway, they have dinner with each other, maybe they do business dealings with each other, and it's just a social club. But there's plenty of social clubs. What, you know, that's not what a church is for. It's to understand the word of God and his plan for your life. Well, what about working my way to heaven? How many good deeds do I have to do? The Bible says you don't have to work your way to heaven. Because he who works, when he works, you incur debt. Okay, there's a situation there. It's a, you know, it's a quid pro quo kind of issue. Salvation is a free gift. Well, what about do I have to be popular? I heard that if, you know, um, if I die, I have to have a bunch of people who are still here pray me out of a certain place so that I could get into heaven. It's predicated on popularity. Not even baptism is a precursor, although when you're saved, the Lord commands us to be baptized. If you look at the thief on the cross, when we covered uh, the book of Luke, uh, Jesus was crucified between two criminals, and the one thief received salvation that day. And Jesus said, I should assuredly say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't have time to come off the cross and get baptized or anything. All he did was repent of his sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and boom, he was saved. The way I explained it to um, a fellow officer was this. God equalizes the playing field, because if it's about money, then or good deeds, then the person who's wealthy, all the wealthy people will get the best seats in heaven because they have the means to do all these good deeds. If it's about popularity, what about the, um, the elderly woman who's disabled and she doesn't, you know, maybe most of her friends have died and she's by herself. She has the same opportunity as the young, popular, uh, wealthy man. You see, because the, the playing field is, is leveled. All you have to do is repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're saved. It's that simple. Verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Now let's go back to repentance. What is repentance? It's a change of direction. Well, what's that? Well, basically, you come to a crossroads in your life where you 
you, you repent and you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Well, repentance is forsaking all the junk that you've accumulated your whole life up until that point, up until the point of salvation. Number one, your sins. Lord, I want to put this stuff aside. I want to turn towards you. I don't want to, be, I don't want to engage in these, these awful sins anymore. And you, you forsake those sins. You confess those sins, right? And he is faithful and just to forgive us your sins, our sins, your sins. And then you move on with him. Even some of the foolish beliefs that you've had. How many, how many of you have seen people or you've been in part of it where you're just around the water cooler at work and, hey, I heard the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. Or I heard the Bible says this, or supposedly they found the bones of Jesus. All the foolish things we've accumulated all our lives up until the point of salvation, we forsake. And we say, Lord, I want to receive from you and your word, the truth. Harbored hatred, unforgiveness. Lord, I want to let go of those things. I want to start new. And that's what repentance is. It's turning around from the way you were going and going in God's direction. John the Baptist preached prior to receiving Jesus, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Let's go back to the jailer. The same creep who partook in these two men being persecuted, this jailer, is now cleaning and dressing their wounds. Now, I may be guilty of eisegetics here, but I'm sure with many tears. Here's a man who probably could care less about these two. Two more prisoners at, throw them in the the prison, shut the light off on them, put them in the stocks, I'm done with them. Now this incredible event happens, and this jailer has a change of heart. Now he's caring for these prisoners. Didn't care for them before. He's cleaning the blood off of them. He's dressing their wounds. You see, he's got a change of heart. It doesn't mean that you're perfect when you receive Jesus, but it does mean you have a change of heart. And that is one of the fruits of repentance. The jailer could have said, yeah, yeah, I'm saved. Go wash your wounds. You're bleeding all over the jail. Come on, clean yourself up. You know, we got we got stuff to do here. But he didn't. His heart changed. And the jailer only got baptized after he did the right thing by Paul and Silas. And that was fruit. Unfortunately, many who have sinned and hurt others just waited out. The attitude of. If enough time goes by, I'll be okay. You wrong somebody. You, you clearly hurt somebody. And you just kind of stay away from the situation. You wait for the smoke to clear. You wait for the dust to settle. I'll just wait it out. And then, and then I'll come back. Everything will be fine. That's not repentance. That's called manipulation. It's very common and it's very unscriptural. Those type of people usually repeat the pattern given enough time. And that is a reflection of our society. We live in a proud society. We don't want people telling us what to do. By nature, we rebel against authority. By nature, we rebel against somebody correcting us and telling us we did something wrong. And and it's almost like you, you get that little bit of adrenaline rush. You start to get defensive if somebody comes to you with an issue. But that's, you know, true repentance is to have a heart change and change your heart and say, oh, yeah, that was that was not good. I'm really sorry for that. That's true repentance. And it's something to reflect on if we're truly saved. And if there's someone we've truly wronged and feel convicted about it, we should make restitution. Here's a good example. A few weeks ago when we did communion, I read um, or I I talk about how Jesus broke the bread and and passed out the cup. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians says that uh, you really shouldn't take the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ unless you examine yourself. Uh, Because some people who have done some pretty awful things have in, in that culture... They ended up were sickly or they died because of um, their treating uh, the, the Lord's Supper as something as a common thing, not reverence for it. So we read here when we do the service, Paul says, but let a man examine himself and then let him 
eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And it's good because somebody asked me, what does that mean? Why do we examine ourselves? For this very reason. Can we go around as Christians and call ourselves Christians hurting people and causing problems and then just take, hey, give me the bread, give me the cup, you know, let's do this thing here. This is great. No, no. We need to examine ourselves. We need to look introspectively into ourselves and say, where have I gone wrong? Where have I hurt somebody? How can I make the changes? Lord, help this situation maybe to come together where we can kind of work this out together. And that's that that self-examination. And again, this jailer, amazingly, he went from one extreme to the other. He completely got the picture. Verse 32. Now, remember what I said before about the... uh, if the jailer's prisoners escaped, he would receive the same punishment as they would have received. His job and life are still in jeopardy at this point, but it's, it's okay. You see, he has a different attitude, and the question is why. Well, because now he has something he didn't possess before, and that was a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Totally different, uh, you know, totally different attitude, totally different things that he says. He's a changed man. And we saw this with Cornelius. Remember Cornelius the centurion? He and his family, they received, they believed, they repented, and they were so excited they didn't want Peter to leave. We saw it with Lydia. Lydia constrained Paul and Silas, you know. Don't leave. This stuff is good. I want to hear more. Tell us more about the Word of God. And now the jailer. Tell me more. What is it that you have to say? What else can I drink in? It's so cool. Another fruit of of somebody who really, in the beginning, who they, they turn to the Lord, they become a Christian, they just, they're always asking questions. When they're done asking questions to you, they'll go to somebody else and ask more Bible questions. Well, what does this parable mean? Well, what does that mean? Well, what did Jesus mean when he say that? They just can't get enough of the Word of God. Hey, this is something I've been looking for all my life, although I don't realize I was looking for it. And now that I got it, I can't get enough, you know? Answer more of my questions. And you see that in these people and their conversion experience. Verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying... Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent uh, to you to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So here, Paul and Silas are holding the city officials accountable. Now, some see this as, see, Christians aren't supposed to be doormats. Although I think the big picture in this uh, part of scripture is that Paul and Silas Number one, we're sensitive to the spirit. And I believe that they thought it would buy the fledgling Philippian church some more time. Remember, they were in a fiercely pagan Roman city. uh, And I think Paul did this very strategically so that they would get off the Christians' backs. And when he left, the Philippian church would be intact and be okay. The town officials may have been a little reticent to persecute any of the Christian group after their big blunder here. And, again, could you, could you make a case where Christians aren't supposed to be doormats? Yeah, you could. I think the wisdom is to know what the difference is. When to just allow it and let it roll off your back and let the Lord deal with it, and when to take a stand. 
That's wisdom. It really is. And I think one of the biggest indicators to that is, are you doing it just to help yourself or are you doing it to help others? Clearly, Paul, I believe, did this to help others. He helped the Philippian church. Now, and we can look at this in a lot of ways. In John chapter 2, Jesus turned over the, temples of, or the, uh, the tables of the money changers and drove out the, drove out the animals and w- made a whip of cords. Why did he do that? He didn't do it for his own good. It's because the religious leaders and the people at the time, the religious system was making a mockery of God. And the temple was God's house. And he's like, you can't do this. This is wrong. And his zeal was for the Lord, you know, for, for the Father. This is, this is making God look bad. It's mocking God. Get out. If you look at Matthew 23, when Jesus uh, characterized the Pharisees and chastised them, why did he do that? Because the religious leaders at the time, using their authority as religious leaders, their vestments, their, their appearance, um, everything about them, their position, they used it to hold the people down and to actually not teach them the truth about salvation. And Jesus was furious, but he was defending the innocent sheep. He wasn't defending himself. And we can look at that too. As a matter of fact, when I think of the one thing that really sticks out in my mind, I was having a discussion with somebody who wasn't a believer, and somehow he talked about Christianity and the bad example it set. But even he conceded that in this country, the biggest uh, push to abolish slavery came from the Christians. You can find a lot of secular, non-Christian sources that will tell you, yeah, it was the Christians. They pushed hard to end slavery. A human being should not own another human being. And I think that was an altruistic goal. They weren't defending themselves. They were defending these people who were enslaved, and they said this was wrong. So again, I think the wisdom to know when not to be a doormat, and you, you could protect your family. The Bible says that, that uh, he who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And if, especially if it's uh, for protecting other people, It's probably a good cause, but it's something that you need to pray about and ask the Lord, should I take a stand in this situation or should I let it go? Verse 37. So Paul and Silas, as Roman citizens, had certain rights. He said, hey, we're uncondemned Romans. How could they have beat us and thrown us in prison? This is wrong. This is against the law. Those little uh, township officials in Philippi could have been in a lot of trouble with the Roman Empire because Roman citizens had certain rights. They... they, uh, they were afforded un- protection from Rome all throughout the Roman world, and also they could not be punished without a proper trial. They couldn't be crucified. There was a whole list of things that a Roman citizen had rights for that the average person did not. And verse 39, so they come and plead with Paul and Silas. They bring them out, and they ask them to dispart- depart from the city. Please go. Guys, can you do us a favor? Can you, just, can you get out of here? And I'm paraphrasing. Kind of reminds me of when Jesus met the demon-possessed man at the Gadarenes. Remember, who are you? you know, we are legion, for we are many. This poor man was, was uh, possessed by 2,000 demons, a legion of demons. And remember, he sends them into the pigs, and they go off the cliff. If you remember, the townspeople did the same thing. Yeah, the demon's gone. Well, pigs are in the water. The crazy man is in his right mind. Wow, a lot happened here. But Jesus, do us a favor. Can you go? We really don't want you to cast out any more demons. We really don't want you to upset the apple cart. Don't mess with our false peace. Don't mess with our way of life. Don't confuse me with the facts, Jesus. Just go. And you see that here too. I want to read one scripture, John 3 and verse 19. Jesus says this, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. There are just so many lessons that we can learn from the scripture. But you see it. You see it. Today, in Philippi, in the Gadarenes, people like their way of life. I like my way of life. I like my sin. I plan my life through my sin. I like the way I'm making money. I like everything about what I'm doing. Don't come in here and start casting out demons. Don't come in here and start disrupting this peace that we have. Remember, it's a false peace. We, we know in the end times that many will say peace and safety, peace and safety. And the Bible says, and then sudden destruction will come. The false prophets in the days of Israel, before they were going to be conquered by the Babylonians, said, it's going to be well with you. It's going to be fine. We're, everybody's okay. You're okay. I'm okay. We're making money. The economy's good. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And then destruction came. It was always God's prophets who said, hey, hey, stop the music. This is wrong. This is sin. We, have, we live in a sinful society, and, and we live in it today. We see it today. New Jersey, everything's fine. It's a sinful society. Our laws, some of our laws are sinful. Some of the, the, a lot of the entertainment is sinful. You know, everything around that surrounds our society is sinful. There's a lot of sinfulness in the church that people don't want to deal with. Don't, don't disrupt the apple cart. Just go. Just get out of here. Because everything's fine until you came in here. It's a good point there. And you, if you really truly follow the Lord and follow his word, you, everybody here, will experience rejection from the world system for spreading that gospel. You will. That's a promise. It's promised right in the scripture. Verse 40. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Paul and Silas weren't going anywhere until they went to Lydia and the little fledgling Philippian church and were going to encourage them and exhort them before they left that city. They needed to strengthen them in that hostile area. They needed to strengthen them in that hostile area. A few things here. There's a recurrent theme of suffering. And when we go through the book of Acts, we see a lot of Paul's ministry was, it was a trail of tears. It was a trail of heartache. Everywhere he went, he got, mostly he got opposition. And the question is why? Well, there were long-range effects that Paul and Silas and his crew could not see, but God could see because God is outside of time. And you can bring this into your own life. If Paul and Silas weren't treated the way they were and the town officials weren't embarrassed the way they were because legal recourse could have been taken against them, the Philippian church may not have survived and the jailer and the prisoners may not have received the gospel. There was actually a historical source that I read that said one of the arches, when you would go into Philippi, there was a strict forbiddance. It was like a law that was written on the, written on the arch. And it said, strictly forbidden any other religion than basically the pagan Roman religion. That's why the people who truly worshipped God in the beginning of the story, they were out by the riverbank worshipping God because there was a lot of persecution against the true believers. When trials come... Or when the trial came, I don't think Paul and Silas could have foreseen that this humiliation was an open door to the Philippian government putting a hands-off policy on that Philippian church. And, of course, later Paul writes a letter to the Philippians, and they're still there, and they're still doing well. A parallel theme here that I just want to touch on is who really is in chains, who really is in bondage. Well, we looked at the beginning of chapter 16 to wrap it all up. The slave girl, she was a, a slave to man. And she was a slave to the underworld. She had a double hit. She was demon-possessed. And then she was free. The slave owners, they thought that they were free because they were controlling this girl and they were making a lot of money, but they were in chains to money. 
to success and they weren't realizing it. The magistrates, they were in chains to a perceived peace and comfort and status quo. Everything's good in Philippi. Don't let anybody come in and disturb that. The Philippian jailer, he was in chains to his career and then he was freed in Christ. The prisoners were in actual physical chains and their past sins for all the evil deeds that they did. And they were also freed and presented with Christ. And Paul and Silas, they were actually in literal chains and it, looked, it was like the worst situation for those two guys, but they were the most free out of everyone in these passages. And then the question I would ask is, what is keeping you in bondage? What is keeping you in chains? Could it be success? To some Christians, it could be worldliness. I want to go this far with my walk with Christ. And you can leave that for somebody else. I want everything that the world has to give me, and I want everything that Jesus has to give me, and that's just right. I like it like that. Persecution, losing my job, alienating family members and friends, you know, that's just not for me. I don't want to go that far. What are you in bondage to? You're in bondage to worldliness. You're in bondage to not allowing God to have full reign in your life. And that, let me tell you something, that's not an easy thing. A casual faith some can be in bondage to. A need to be needed, fill in the blank. Because like Paul says, what you present your members, slaves to obey, that one will be your master. And Jesus says, you're going to have to serve one or two masters. And the question today is, which master do we serve? Let's pray.